mission is a lifestyle. It is a way of life. It's who we are. In fact, we have all been commissioned to be on mission. To be a Christian by identity means that we are, a, that we are on mission, and God has called each and every one of us for a specific work to glorify Him and to carry out His purposes. We all have been sent, in a sense. Now, some people are called to relocate geographically, and some people are called to be just relocate across the street, depending on where we live. The point is we've all been sent. We've all been uh, declared or identified as witnesses for Jesus Christ. And so thank you for making that point known. And I also wanted to say this. Uh, it, I, I love how God nudges us, patiently prods us along into things that we would probably have laughed, like you said, laughed at, maybe even resisted to the best of our ability. Uh, I've shared with with you before, but uh, I am not a pastor today because I aspire to be a pastor at a young age. In fact, I went to seminary with no intention of being a pastor, did not want to be a pastor, and yet God has his unique ways of opening doors and nudging us along and bringing people into our lives at very poignant moments to go, huh, and the light bulb gradually begins to turn on. And so I have been a pastor here at IBC for 10 and a half years. This is all God's design, and I had no clue that I'd be doing what I'm doing right now. And I just thank the Lord for his patient prodding in my life as well as in your life. You know, in the 10 and, year, 10 and a half years that I have been here at IBC, uh, and of course I worked a, in a little church plant in Long Beach while I was going to seminary, um, I have been a part of a, a number of memorials and celebrations of life, and um, you know, it, it's different. Um, This was going to come. It's different when it's personal. But most of you know that just less than two weeks ago, uh, my mother-in-law, her fight is over. And she's with the Lord. And that is something to celebrate. And just a week ago Saturday, we got to celebrate her homecoming. And we got to celebrate her Savior, Jesus Christ. And it was glorious to honor her, but to honor the Savior in whom she lived for. And so, yes, I have overseen and officiated many memorials, but this one was a little more personal and a little more um, impactful. And even though every memorial to me, and I I hope it is for you in this way, I know that it is always an incredible opportunity to face your mortality face-to-face and to think through what really matters most in this life. I I truly believe that every celebration of life, every every time we come face-to-face with our mortality, it's important that we ask questions like, what really happens when I die? How do I really know what happens after I die or when a loved one dies? Should I be scared? Is it possible to face death with peace? Should I even take the time to think about it at all? You know, there's a lot of ideas and I believe a lot of misconceptions about what happens after we die. Some people think that your soul just kind of roams around with this kind of in a disembodied state, you know, kind of like these ghosts or something. And, you know, the dead can still be a guide to us or a help to us in this life or even haunt us in this life. Uh, some people believe that you will reincarnate into another form. You may not be reincarnate to a human form, but you reincarnate to something uh, of life in this, on this world. Nietzsche actually believed that everyone lives the exact same life over and again for an infinite period of time. And so uh, basically, when you die, you are reborn again at some way with the exact person, and you live a whole other lifetime, and this just goes on perpetually forever. 
Some believe that this whole world, this earth, the universe, and everything in it is just a figment of your imagination. That's kind of a Buddhist approach to things. Nothing really exists. It's a facade of sorts, sort of like the matrix. And then people that do believe that everything exists believe that sometimes that when we die, we just are a bunch of kind of put together carbon material, and so we just kind of basically fertilize the soil beneath us. And then for those of us who do believe in heaven or some version of heaven, we have some ideas like, for example, grandpa and grandma are looking down on me and smiling upon me and looking after me. The question is, what does the Bible say about what happens when we die? The fact is we all have ideas, and sometimes they're nostalgic ideas. They're, 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 they're ways in which we are seeking to comfort ourselves or comfort one another. But the question is, what does the Bible actually say happens or occurs when we or a loved one dies? The fact is the Bible says much about what happens when we die. It has much to say about the, the various things that take place the moment someone's final breath has been taken. For the unbeliever, or for those who are not a follower of Jesus Christ, thinking about one's death and what happens after death is both a sobering warning as well as a loving invitation. For an unbeliever, it's a sobering warning as well as a loving invitation. But for the believer or for the follower of Jesus Christ, it replaces potential fears with hope and with joy and with confidence. John Piper said it well when he says, when you know the truth about what happens when you die and you believe that truth, that truth has the potential to make you free. It's as if we could identify with the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, when he says, to die is gain. To die is gain. Really? Really? According to Paul, yeah, to die is to gain. And so this morning I want to, we are going to, this is our final sermon of our membership series. You know, this has been a long time coming. We started in September. We are finally concluding our membership series. I will give instruction to that at the end of the service as far as what it means to, to take the next steps of membership. I know a number of you have been asking or waiting very patiently for that. So thank you for your patience. And I'll, like I said, give final instruction to what those next steps can look like. But this morning, we, we've been going through the last part of this membership series through our statement of faith, and specifically, it's been talking about the bodily resurrection. But as I was beginning to unpack that, I was like, you know what? And having the last couple of weeks been a very uh, uh, personal time with my own mother-in-law passing, I really wanted to expand the topic and just in general, what happens after we die? What can we expect? What should be the perspective, from, at least from a believer's standpoint, about what we know happens because of what the Bible teaches? And so this morning, I'm going to kind of touch on four different truths about what happens after we die. The first one is this. The first truth is this. When a believer dies, they go immediately into the presence of of Christ. When a believer dies, they go immediately into the presence of Christ. In other words, their spirit or their soul returns to God. What does Solomon say in Ecclesiastes 12? He says, the dust will return to earth and the spirit will return to God who gave it. I want to encourage you this morning because this is going to be a little bit abnormal to how I usually deliver sermons, but we're going to be turning our Bibles a lot this morning. And instead of you just listening to me, I want you to open your Bibles. Ooh, I love all the movement I see already. This is great. So either turn on your Bibles, open your Bibles. Please avoid those notifications on your phone. Those aren't helpful. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The first passage we're going to look at is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And we're going to start in verse 16. And we're going to read all the way through verse 10 of chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through chapter 5, verse 10. When I hear a little less page turning, I'll know that we're mostly there. 
These are the words of the Apostle Paul, his second letter given to the church of Corinth. Now, we're getting it to the, the latter part of this chapter, and Paul began this chapter in chapter 4 saying, we do not lose heart. And he gives multiple reasons to this chapter of why he doesn't lose heart, and then he bookends his thought by saying it again, we do not lose heart, verse 16, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or or temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we should be unclothed, but that we be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. There we are again. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil." Now, that's a huge mouthful, or an earful in this case, and, uh, and I'm not going to touch on every single nuance of what Paul is describing there, but let me give you some summary thoughts as to kind of the things that he's actually describing and unpacking for us. Again, the main point is when a believer dies, they go immediately into the presence of Christ. First of all, Paul says, we don't lose heart, and he, and he gives kind of a, an honest assessment of his own life, at least, and says, I don't lose heart even though my body is wasting away, even though my body groans, even though my body is wearing out and there's nothing I can do about it, I don't lose heart. Now, it's interesting when you kind of translate that understanding or that thought process in our day and age, that's not how many people respond. They don't go, as my body breaks down, I'm just more full of joy, Usually we have this kind of grimace on our face, right? The aches and the pains, the the snap, crackle, pop as we stand up from our pew, and we're like, oh. I think I heard it on the radio just this past week, you know, saying, you can tell you're getting older by how long the sigh is when you stand up. And the fact is, as our body is breaking down, as our, as our body is wasting away, as, things, as gravity starts to take a, a much more uh, fortunate effect on our bodies, it, um, it can be discouraging, right? It can be painful, in fact. In fact, there's pretty massive movements, especially in the Western world. How do we avoid this aging process or at least mask it as much as we are able And I know plastic surgery has only so much effect for most of us. But the fact is, no matter what we think we can do or try to do, do, our bodies are falling apart. And of course, this can be a source of discouragement, maybe frustration, maybe even uh, instill fear in our lives. And yet Paul says... Yeah, my body's groaning. It is wore out. And of course, he gave his whole lit, kind of a whole resume of the beatings he's endured, the persecutions, left for dead. I mean, there's a whole resume of like most people would be rendered dead at that point, and yet he still continues to live by God's grace, minister by God's grace, and he says, I'm full of joy, and I don't lose heart. Sort of helps kind of, kind of at least for me, when I read those kinds of words, I go, How? How do you obtain or acquire that kind of perspective, Paul? How can you actually say, I'm not actually losing heart at all? I'm not discouraged? When yet, look at what all you've gone through. Look at how much you have endured. Look how beat up and and, and wasting away your body is at this point. 
Well, Paul says this, I don't lose heart. Why? Because first and foremost, I fix my eyes on what I cannot see. What is, he, what is Paul getting at there? I don't lose heart because I fix my eyes on what I cannot see. What he's referring to is really kind of a reference to his heavenly dwelling, his heavenly existence, his eternal existence in the presence of Jesus. It's why he goes on to say in verse 7 of chapter 5, I walk by faith right now, not by sight, because one day I will walk by sight, meaning I will be face-to-face with Jesus. Right now we live by faith. And his spirit is a guarantee, but one day we will live by sight because, again, we will be finally, fully in the presence of Jesus. In fact, he goes on to say that he's able to to, uh, to be full of joy and to not lose heart because he knows there's an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. I just want to pause there just for a moment and... um, just kind of just camp out on that little statement, beyond all comparison. You know, I think it's difficult for people, and I would say especially for Westerners, to look forward to the afterlife, or maybe to look forward to heaven because we don't really think that it's better. Now, of course, we may, yeah, I know it's supposed to be better than what I can imagine here, but if we're honest with ourselves, we actually are more consumed with this life than the next. Perhaps we might even love this life too much. And so the wasting away of our bodies and and, and death in general for many people, is regarded as loss and terrible and unfortunate and sad and, and many times premature. It wasn't always this way, though, in the Christian church. This heavenly anticipation used to be kind of a central uh, life-sustaining conviction in the church. But what we oftentimes see is when you read like the book of Judges, for example, you see the life cycle of humanity on full display. When things are hard, people run to Jesus, they run to God, and they cry out to him for deliverance, and God in his grace delivers people, and then things are good again, and there's peace. And unfortunately, in those times of peace, what happens is we walk away from God. Hey, God, thanks so much. We're good now. And then, of course, we reap what we sow. Sometimes a generation or so later, perhaps. And, of course, because we reap what we sow, then all of a sudden we find ourselves in very terrible circumstances again. And then we cry out to God in our brokenness, and God in His grace redeems us again. And we look at the people of Israel and go, what is wrong with you? Until we see a mirror held up to our face and going, what is wrong with me? Don't I do the same thing? When things are going my way and things are good and things are what, what we call controllable, we're good. We're less dependent. We love our life. Heaven is something distant. Except for when all of a sudden we're faced with the diagnosis of cancer or when we all of a sudden just there's a series of difficult and unfortunate things that we've had to endure through, then all of a sudden we go, man, this life sometimes is not all it's cracked up to be. Paul says this, for me to live is Christ, Philippians 1.21, and to die is gain. Paul even goes on to say, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for, what does he say? For that is far better. 
You see, Paul's perspective on life, he wasn't just giving up on this life because he had so many persecutions to endure through. No, he realized regardless of how good or how difficult life was in this temporary earthly tent called this body, he says being with Christ is far better In other words, this eternal weight of glory is a thousand times better than anything you can imagine. And so the real question I believe that we all need to kind of grapple with and maybe reflect on more seriously in our lives is, does heaven and thoughts of heaven and our eternal dwelling have its proper place in our lives? Do we really understand what awaits us? C.S. Lewis is classically, he's quoted oftentimes, and I'm just going to kind of summarize what he has said, but he says, we as Christians oftentimes are like kids that are content with playing, making mud pies because we cannot fathom what a holiday at the sea is like. And of course, The context in which he's speaking is we get so wrapped up with this life that we can't fathom that eternity in heaven is a million times better. It's beyond your greatest imagination. Think about it for a moment. If you're like, if I could pick the perfect life, heaven is no comparison to anything you can come up with. It's even better. It's beyond what you can even come up with. And so Paul is able to honestly say that he is always of good courage, not because he's not legitimately affected by his circumstances and affected by his persecutions and his hardships, but he says, I'm always of good courage because he knew what God was preparing before him, for him. So even though his body was falling apart, and even though he realized that his, even in his groaning, he realized that God was preparing him for eternity with Christ. You know, there's kind of this inverse relationship that somewhat take, that kind of takes place, and my, my grandmas actually both said it. They said, you know, as I'm getting older, just like, man, why hasn't the Lord taken me? And I've thought about that going like, well, do you want to go? And they're like, what do I got here? What am I holding on to here? In other words, as our body falls apart, it actually prepares us to long for a new body, a new existence, a new reality with Jesus that is permanent, that is undefiled, that is unfading, reserved in heaven for us. And so it doesn't mean that we dismiss this body. It doesn't mean that we don't enjoy what God has given to us. All the while, we do not lose heart. We do not become discouraged because every, every day, God is preparing us for an eternal dwelling place, an eternal existence with him. Paul knew that being with Christ was far better, was far greater, so he does not lose heart. He knew that the moment he died, whenever God ordained that to be so, he would be immediately in the presence of God. Now, I want to say a couple other things, and I don't have time to flesh this out or exegete this for us necessarily, but let me just say this very briefly from this passage. When you read this passage and kind of camp out on it, Paul's ultimate desire was that he would not die, actually, but that he would be living when Christ returned. Paul's ultimate desire was to be alive when Christ returned. He wanted to see Jesus coming on the clouds. He wanted to see Jesus coming because in that moment, he would be instantly changed and clothed with his heavenly dwelling body. But if that was not God's plan for him, and as we know today, that wasn't, then his next desire was to be with the Lord, even though he would not actually receive his resurrected body until the return of Christ. Which brings us to another necessary point of clarity when a believer dies. You see, when a believer dies, first and foremost, they go immediately into the presence of Christ. But secondly, when a believer dies, they will receive an imperishable resurrected body at the second coming of Christ. Your Bibles are open, right? Turn in your Bibles a few pages back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
I believe we have this passage of Scripture already read for us this morning, but let's read it again. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to start in verse 51, the second part of verse 51 and following. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51 and following. We shall not all sleep, meaning we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. And what Paul is contrasting here is some people will be alive when Christ returns and some people will die before Christ returns. We shall not all sleep or, or die be- prematurely before Christ comes, but we, we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Again, this is the context here is when Christ comes. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable and the mortal body must put on the immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass a saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Three things I want to point out here from this passage. First of all, as a believer in Jesus Christ, we can know for certain that you will receive a real, physical, and eternal body. Believers in Jesus Christ will receive a real, physical, eternal body. Our eternal existence will not be some kind of ethereal or ghost-like existence. No, we will have real bodies like we have right now. Except these bodies will not be vulnerable to corruption and sin. It's like what Revelation 21 describes for us, right? No more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. We just sung about that earlier. That's what we can anticipate. We are, gonna, we are going to acquire, because of God's doing, a new body like us, physical, touchable, livable. It's just to live forever. No longer under the corrupting power of sin. Secondly, this resurrected body will look like you. There's a continuity in sense between the old and the new. It will look like you. Now, not to make light of this, but some of us in here, may, that may not be good news. <laughs> but I must have going like, really? But here's the thing. Just imagine a glorified, resurrected body that is unstained by sin and death. It's perfect. Everything that God does is perfect. Everything that God makes is perfect. It's good. And so we're all lovely because God is the one who made us. You will be you. Now, of course, we don't have a lot of detail in Scripture as far as, well, if I died old, am I going to be eternally old looking? If I died as a kid, am I going to be eternally a kid? I don't know all those things. But I do know this, that you will have a new body, and it'll look like you. You think about even Jesus, right? Jesus, when he was resurrected, he rose from the dead. He didn't look like someone else. Everybody recognized him as Jesus. Unique to Jesus, he will eternally have the scars in his wrists and in his feet. An eternal reminder of what God has done for his people. You see, God isn't necessarily going to obliterate everything, but he does promise to redeem everything. Third thing that we can understand is not only do we get a real physical body that's going to live for eternity and it will look like us, but believers will receive a real physical body at the second coming of Christ. In other words, those who died prior to Christ's return will be clothed with their resurrected body before those who are alive. You turn it, again, you got your Bibles open. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm purposely not just throwing the, the passage of the Scripture on the screen for us because I want you to know in your Bibles where can I turn again to sit, reflect, meditate, and chew on the words of Christ. So in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul actually helps these Thessalonian believers understand what they can expect because the context there is some of them are discouraged. They're saddened. They're confused. They're ignorant as to, like, we've lost loved ones. What do I know happens? What hope do I have to cling to for loved ones that, have not, that are not around at the return of Christ? Listen to what Paul says starting in verse 13 of First Thessalonians chapter 4. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Christ returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord, for we who are living... When the Lord returns, we'll not meet him ahead of those who have died. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever." So encourage each other with these words. What happens when a deep believer dies prior to the return of Christ? We know that they go immediately into the presence of God. There's, their soul goes immediately into the presence of God. We might even refer to this as a place called paradise, a waiting place. They are fully in God's presence, but one day they will receive their promise of the, the kind of the full inheritance that awaits them, which is a resurrected body. This is really the final state for the believer, right? Yes, as Paul would say, uh, to be with Christ is far greater even now, that believers will go immediately into the presence of, die, uh, to Christ, uh, of God, and to die is definitely a gain for all people who are followers of Jesus Christ, but the final state of the believer is to inherit their resurrected body, which occurs when Christ comes again. And until that time, we know that a believer's soul remains with Christ in paradise. That's why we can confidently say it is well with their soul. They are good. They are with their Savior. And they're waiting with great anticipation the culmination of all God's redemptive plans. So what happens after that then? What happens after we are all resurrected with a new body? This brings us to our third point. All people, believer and unbelievers, will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Hebrews 9:27 says this, it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. 2 Corinthians 5:10 we read it earlier, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil. Paul says in Romans 14, verse 10, Why do you pass judgment on, one, on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. And there are multiple passages of Scripture that we can turn to that speak to the fact that one day we will stand before God and we will give an account for our lives here on earth. But we do need to understand something very clearly. And I don't, this is a whole other sermon or sermon series in and of itself. In fact, Pastor Mike in his Revelation class may actually get to this part when we talk about the Bema seat and all these different kind of judgment seats. But let me just give you a, a super brief uh, elementary education on this. There's two judgment seats. One is for believers and one is for non-believers. 
We have the judgment seat of Christ for believers, and that is really based on one's faithfulness to Christ. In other words, all believers will stand before Christ and give an account for their life here on earth. But it is not a judgment that decides your salvation. It is a judgment that decides your reward. You do realize that we will be rewarded in heaven. There are kind of, in a sense, kind of degrees of reward in heaven. And yes, we have this picture that we're going to throw our crowns at the feet of Jesus because we're just so, and so in love with him, and that's great. But there are rewards. There, in a sense, we are in a kind of a testing ground right now. And this isn't a, a jockeying for position. This isn't a comparison with one another. This is just about, have I been faithful to what God has called me to be faithful to? For Paul, knowing what happens after he dies radically influenced how he lived in the present. It radically influenced and motivated him to be faithful right now. So there's the judgment seat of Christ. But we also have what's called the great white throne judgment. We see this more depicted in Revelation. And this is actually for unbelievers based on one's faithfulness or one's faith in Christ, whether they had faith in Christ or not. And this is where one's eternal condemnation is given and the degree to which it is given. That's why I said at the beginning, for the unbeliever, knowing what happens after you die is both a sobering warning as well as a loving invitation. Because we will all give an account. And, if you, and for those who do not have salvation faith, they have not trusted Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior, there are eternal consequences. I know it is not very um, popular to think of God in this way. We, want to th- we like the idea of that God is a loving God. But we like to dismiss his holiness. We like that God is a just God just so long as he's not a wrathful God. We like God that he's a very inclusive God just so long as he doesn't do anything that doesn't fit my image or perspective or idea of what God should be. But the fact is, Scripture is very clear, brothers and sisters, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone will one day, whether they do it in this life or not, will acknowledge that Jesus, you are God and you are Lord. The real question is, have they made that profession of faith now? In some ways, it is the impetus It is the driving force that ought to compel each and every one of us to fulfill our witness, to fulfill our mission, to declare and be heralds of this gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, because he is the only way to God. There is no other way. Perhaps it compels us to see people differently. Perhaps it compels us to See, view our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends, maybe people we've known for years, to go, you know what? Maybe I have my window with them is very short. Brother Joe Forrest called me the other day and shared with me that he got to lead one of his friends to Christ on his deathbed. Unexpectedly went into hospice, but gave his life to Christ. Yeah, that is something to celebrate, is it not? Until we take our last breath, there is always hope and there's always time. Even as Jesus tells the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. There's always hope. And may we never become discouraged And may we always be persistent and actively pursuing one another until we have no more opportunity.
Fourth and finally, when a believer dies, they will live forever with God on a new earth. Turn with your Bibles one more time to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Starting in verse 10, and we'll read through verse 13. Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of, the God, day of God, because which, of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I know you can read that passage later because I just heard the pages stop turning. But what Peter is getting at here is he's giving a description of what we can anticipate, what we can expect, of how, how things are all going to kind of end in the end. And we see this hope and this promise of a new earth has been interpreted, I think, in a variety of ways. And you know, some people believe that this new heaven and new earth comes about because God completely obliterates or destroys what he has prepared, that he's created before. In other words, like, you know what? This all just kind of didn't work or sin has corrupted everything. We're starting fresh. Or some people interpret what God is going to do, this new heaven and new earth, as more of a fully restored heaven and a fully restored earth, meaning eventually everything's going to get better. So it may be bad now, but eventually everything's going to get better. Now, I believe that, at least from my study, and again, we can have a conversation about this later, but from my study, I believe the, the, the most fair interpretation of what either Peter is talking about as well as other passages of Scripture when they're brought into the light is that this new heaven and this new earth is a fully redeemed and restored earth, which includes both a cleansing destruction as well as a full restoration of God's original creation. Do you get that? In other words... God isn't going, you know what, this earth thing didn't work out. I, I got another solar system that I'm going to create over here and start fresh. That's not what God is doing. No, he is going to cleanse the earth, but he's not starting with a new earth. He's, uh, he's going to basically fully restore and redeemed what he's already created. Think of a house remodel. Think of a full house remodel. All the bones are still there, but you know what, we're, uh, doing, some pretty mass, we're doing a pretty massive overhaul here. We're, we're kind of like, it's really outdated, and we're going to, in a sense, putting all the fine touches on again. It's all going to be updated. But the house is still the same. The same it's going to have the same layout, but it's all made new. And the reason why I come to that understanding is because when you also read another passage, like in Romans 8, for example, if you want to just listen, you can. Or you can turn there. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18, Paul says these words, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's very similar to what he just said in 2 Corinthians, right? But he goes on to say this, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Again, Paul references even creation groans, right? Not just our bodies are groaning, but creation itself is groaning. It's longing for its redemption. It's not longing for annihilation. It's longing for redemption, It's longing for full restoration. 
And so even Paul himself refers to, Paul refers to creation and that all that God has created that was once declared good and perfect, that God will one day make good and perfect again where sin will be completely wiped away, where death will be completely wiped away, where Jesus or God will be our king. He is already our king, by the way. But one day we will be in the full presence of the king. And until that time, we have a spirit as a guarantee. And so God isn't completely doing away with everything. He is making all things new. Jesus was resurrected with a new glorified body, and it was still Christ. It's like kind of what God did with the flood. The flood was a, uh, in a sense, God destroyed everything uh, on a global scale, right? But he didn't destroy the earth. He cleansed the earth. That's sort of what happens in the tribulation period, but God is still going to make all things new. And these all things new that God is creating is somewhat described in Isaiah chapter 11. We get this little glimpse of this new heaven and this new earth. And listen to these words. When you think about what heaven, the the, the peace and the serenity that exists by being in the full presence of God, Isaiah describes it in this way. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe, and the lion and the little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put his hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. History as we know it will come to an end, but God will be at the center, John Piper says. So brothers and sisters, what do we say in summary to all this? Let me just say this. Knowing what happens after we die or after a loved one dies has the, the effect of instilling certainty and confidence and hope in place of ignorance and in place of fear. The fact is, when we know what happens after we die and we actually believe those things, what's promised in Scripture, then that truth actually makes you free. And we are able to identify with Paul and believe it with Paul to die is actually gain. But I believe we can only view that statement to die is gain when we have a proper and biblical view of what awaits us. When we view what awaits us as an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. So here's my challenge for you, my encouraging challenge for you. There's an old adage, and I've said this before, and I'll just say it again. You know, we, we, we've heard it probably many times, the idea that someone can be so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. I don't know how to put it in a nice way, but it's bull, fill in the blank. Now, the fact is, we can be no earthly good until we are fully consumed with what awaits us. And until we are so wrapped up or caught up in this heavenly dwelling that God is preparing for us and what awaits us for all eternity, only then can, we, can I believe that we can we be effectively and faithfully about the Lord's business. Because you know what awaits all people who share the same faith in Jesus Christ. And so can I encourage you with one resource to consider, if you have not yet considered it. There's a book about heaven called Heaven. Randy Alcorn has written it. Perhaps many of you have already read it or listened to it on audio. But what would it be like 
if you spent daily or weekly time in a, in a, in a healthy way, just kind of getting lost in what awaits you. I believe as, our, as we are more filled with what awaits us, as I've already said, we will be more faithful until that time comes. And so I would encourage you, if you have not gotten a resource like this, order on Amazon today or listen to it on Amazon, you know, on audiobooks today. I think it will enrich and encourage your soul. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your goodness to us. We are so grateful for your love for us. We are so grateful for the fact that even because of our sin, and even in our sin, and even in our ugliness, Father, you died. And you made us alive together with you. Jesus, right now, we just say we love you. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for the promise and the hope of eternity. Thank you that it's not just some kind of weird place that we have really no information about at all. But Father, you want us to long for eternity. You want us to anticipate eternity with you. You want us to long for your return. So Father, help us not to be so consumed with this life that we neglect our eternal home. Help us to see ourselves as citizens of heaven before citizens here on earth. Help us to know our identity as you say it is. Help us to be so caught up in the things that are of eternal value that we would, like Paul, not lose hope, that we would not lose heart, that we would not become discouraged, but that we'd be full of joy and be at total peace. Not because of our circumstances, but because we know that everything that happens in this life is only preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. Help us to that end, Father, by your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.